0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We're going through the book of James. We are in Chapter 2. Um, the book of James, by way of reminder, one of the unique, it's got some unique features to it that makes it different than the rest of the books in the New Testament. It is very possible that James was the first New Testament book that was actually written, so an early epistle, and also it's got more imperatives and commands in it in such a short epistle than any of Paul's epistles. So uh, those are the two uh, distinctive features to it. It's written by James, who was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ and rose to prominence and leadership in the early church in Jerusalem and became kind of the chairman next to uh, the Apostle Peter and John the Apostle and the other James. And uh, this James, who wrote this epistle, uh, helped oversee a very large church in Jerusalem early on with thousands of people. Then there were certain uh, incidents that happened at the early church, persecution, famine, and other things that caused a lot of these people to move out of the area, and they were not living in the area of Palestine anymore. And so it's years later, and James is writing these people, many of whom he's probably met and known and interacted with before. And it's been 10 to 15 years now that they've been waiting on the Lord Jesus to return, and as they have resumed their life, uh, James either got personal interaction and noticed a couple of deficiencies in these believers, or maybe he heard reports from churches abroad that a lot of these Jewish believers were getting somewhat lethargic, um, living the Christian life 15 years into it. Oh, Jesus didn't come 15 years ago, and so that was one of the main reasons that uh, James's epistle in terms of the way it comes across is so commanding with all these imperatives in every single chapter, um, trying to re-energize their faith and remind them of their focus and their priorities in life and not get caught up into the world and lost in lethargy and apathy and losing the priorities of what it means to be a Christian. And so really this epistle by James is an epistle of action, of the Christian duty, of walking your talk, as a Christian. And really the crescendo of that is in James chapter 2 where James really reaches a zenith in this theme of telling Christians basically if you are a Christian and a professing believer, then you need to have attitudes and works that reveal that in your life. That's all there is to it. I'm an apple tree. Okay, Mr. Tree, I see the... uh, Leaves and the branches, but where's the fruit? Where are the apples? And that's the same with a Christian. If you're a true Christian, then there are certain things that need to be manifest from your life, consistent with the fact that you call yourself a Christian. So that's where he's at. And so let's go to James chapter 2. We're in the middle of a section 14 to 26 in James chapter 2. It all goes together. It's one argument that he's laying out, and he starts it off with this question in 14 to these professing believers. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And so that's the initial question. So apparently, they're actually professing Christians, maybe even real Christians, that James knew of or heard about that were in their congregations, saying they could live the Christian life without having to live like a Christian. That their profession of faith in Jesus was enough. And that they didn't they were not required to have good works in their life or godly works. And James is arguing saying, No, that is, that is absurd. You can't just be a Christian by way of profession. It's not just mental assent. If you're a Christian, godly good works will issue from your life by virtue of what God does in salvation when he saves someone. You're a new person. That's what uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians. That anybody who is in Christ is a new creature, a new creation. The moment you believe and truly got saved and became born again, God made you a new creature and He started primarily on the inside of you. He did a supernatural, invisible, heavenly transaction of saving your soul and my soul. Then He also did an amazing thing by giving the Holy Spirit of God inside of you to live in you the moment you believe and became a Christian to the rest of your life here on earth until you die. Every Christian has... The Holy Spirit of God living in them. Romans 8 says, clearly, the the same Holy Spirit of God that helped create the universe out of nothing, the same Holy Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, that's power, isn't it? Lives in every Christian. And as a result, the Spirit of God is going to produce godly works in your life and good fruit. Guaranteed, that is the promise of God. The problem is, as human beings... We can't see people's hearts, we don't know people's hearts, only God does, right? So we don't know motives, we can't see intentions, we don't. We can't see invisible supernatural transactions that happen in the human heart at the time of salvation and justification that God does. The only thing that we can see are the byproducts of human behavior. In attitudes, words, and actions. And those are the works or the fruits of your heart that, that James is talking about. By the way, everybody produces works and fruits, right? Everybody does. You're either an apple tree or a sour lemon tree. You you got fruit. It's either a sweet savor to God or it, it stinks. And the issue is your heart. Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So that is the theme that James picks up on here. And basically in verse 14, he says, if you're a professing Christian, you need to have a manifestation of true works in your life. And so he talks about, he wants to develop a discussion on what true saving faith is because James argues there is counterfeit faith. He calls it dead faith two times in this passage. He calls it useless faith one time in this passage. And he wants to develop what true saving faith is, supernatural faith that comes only from God. And that's why... The title of the sermon is The Nature of Saving Faith, The Nature of True Faith, The Nature of Supernatural Faith that Only Comes from God. And I came up with just four principles summarized in verses 21-23. to 23. So let's go ahead and look at, uh, we'll pick up on the last three points of James of what he's trying to say about the nature of true faith. And he argued 14-20, to 20, one of his themes there, that it's not just believing intellectually, it's not just believing that God exists because even demons believe that God exists. But they don't have godly works to go along with their faith or belief they have in God. It's more than that. True saving faith has to have godly works that issue from that faith to validate that faith as being true and legitimate and not a facade or not being demonic or of the world. True faith. And so, by way of illustration, he's going to refer to two Old Testament saints that were godly people who were saved by faith and as a result of being saved by grace through faith, their life was characterized by godly works after they got saved. And that would be Abraham and Rahab. And so we're looking at the example or the illustration of Abraham, who was a man of faith, but also lived a life of godly works issuing from his life because he was saved. So let's go ahead and look at 21 to 23. And I'm just going to read that section there where he uses Abraham as an example. I'll actually go down to verse 24. And most of your Bibles, uh, the NIV says righteous in verse 21. Uh, the rest of your Bibles probably say justified I'm actually going to read it with the actual Greek word in there. I don't want to translate it. I'm going to transliterate it. Well, why are you doing that? Well, actually, the New Testament has plenty of words that aren't translated. You just don't know it. For whatever reason, when they translated the Bible, there were some Greek words they chose not to translate. They left them in their Greek form. For example, baptized. That's the Greek word. And they chose, for whatever reason, they didn't choose to translate it. Because they could have translated it as dunk is what they should have done. But they didn't. Another one is angel. They decided not to translate it. That's the actual Greek word. The translation for angel should be messenger. They didn't do that. I don't know why they did that. Uh, Amen is a transliteration from Hebrew. It's a transliteration from Greek. And they chose not to translate that. They left it in its original Greek language. Amen, which just simply means yes, it is so. Alleluia is another one that they didn't. Translate, they transliterate it. So I'm going to exercise some liberty here, and I'm going to transliterate the Greek word in twenty-one and not translate it until later. So uh, James goes on. Was not Abraham our father a decaiothe by works? Offering up Isaac his son on the altar. You see, that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected or matured. And the Scripture was fulfilled or enhanced, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a man is adikaiothi by works and not by faith alone. Hopefully that helped you and not confused you. But I was trying to make a point. That follows up on our last two Sundays. So let's go ahead and look at uh, the four truths that I want to highlight. The first one we already covered, and that's verse 21, where the nature of true saving faith has remained constant since creation. In other words, human beings get saved the same no matter what period of history you live in. Adam and Eve got saved the same way we do, by grace through faith in the Word of God revealed to them as sinners. And then here uh, in this passage especially in verse 23 where in chapter 2 of James he says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's out of Genesis 15:6 and Romans that reiterates this truth that Abraham was saved by grace through faith apart from works. Abraham was not saved by obeying laws in the Old Testament. Abraham was not saved by agreeing to get circumcised in Genesis 17. Abraham was already saved when he agreed to do the works of the law of circumcision in Genesis 17. So you're not saved by works nobody was in history noah was saved by grace through faith and that's what hebrews 11 is all about they were all saved by grace through faith just like we are point number one saving faith has remained constant since creation it's not going to change it's always going to be the same that takes us to point number two and that's that saving faith produces godly behavior verses 21 and 22 true saving faith produces godly behavior it is inevitable that uh, good works, godly works are going to issue from the life of somebody who is truly born again. And this is his argument here. That's what he's saying, Abraham. By the way, if you, you know, if you were a Jew all throughout history, and you'd say, who was the greatest Old Testament father? You'd probably say Abraham if you were Jewish. And Well, why was Abraham so great? Well, he was known as a man of faith. Isn't that interesting? They wouldn't say, oh, Abraham, he was known as a man of works. They didn't say that it was abraham was the great father of faith he was a man of faith and that's exactly what hebrews 11 says is it showcases abraham as the great man of faith the great patriarch of faith so he was a man of faith james believed that abraham was a man of faith but james also takes a different perspective here and highlights that not only was abraham a man of true saving faith he was also Typified in living his life by godly behavior or good works. And that's his point here. Because all he's saying is his point number two, that true saving faith produces godly behavior. You can't be a true Christian and have zero good works in your life. You can't be a Christian and live like the world the rest of your life. You have to stand out. You have to be different. You're going to stand out and be different by virtue of your attitudes, your words, and your works that God produces in your life. That's all he's saying. So James is really pointing the finger at these people in these congregations who are saying, no, I don't need good works in my life. I can live like the world. I, just, I, gotta, I believe in Jesus and that's all I need. No, that ain't good enough. But Abraham, the great man of faith, was also known by godly behavior. Well, what was the godly behavior that he did in his life by way of illustration? Well, he says, One of the prime examples that Abraham did is an act of faith that uh, is just actually mind-boggling when you try to think about it and wrap your mind or arms around this thing. It's incomprehensible to me as I was reading through this again this week. Wasn't that Abraham, our father, validated, vindicated that he was a true believer by his works that he did in his life? For example, specifically that one time in his life where he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar... Okay, I want you to go back. We we looked at it briefly. I want to do it one more time. Go to Genesis 22. We have got to look at this story. Absolutely amazing. Keeping in mind that Abraham was called by God as a pagan idol worshiper when he was 75 years old in the area of Iraq. He was called by God to go to the area of Canaan or Palestine or Israel, which he did at age 86. He had been getting 11 years of spontaneous revelation from God, either through dreams, visions, and audible verbal words from God. And that culminated as his faith continued to grow until it culminated in an act of salvation initiated by God when Abraham was 86 years old. And that's the testimony of Genesis 15, where uh, Abraham and God are literally talking like friend to friend. And God told Abraham to look at the sky and look at all those stars. And Abraham, as many stars as there are, so your descendants will be. And it says Abraham believed God. And in that moment of time, it said that God reckoned his faith to Abraham as righteousness. All that means is that in that moment of time, Abraham was justified, born again, saved at age 86. He's been a believer since Genesis 15. Now we go off to Genesis 22, starting at verse 1. And it says, now it came about after these things. After what things? Well, after the fact that he got saved at age 86 in Genesis 15, after his wife had a baby when he was 100 and fulfilled the promise, and that's exactly what Genesis 21 is about. So that's 14 years that have transpired since he got saved. And now about 20 more years goes by and we are in Genesis 22. Meaning that Abraham has been a believer for about 35 years now. And his life has been characterized... You know, he messed up like we all do, right? He told a lie. Oops. Oops. He said, oops, he was unfaithful to his wife, oops, but he was a true believer going in the right direction. And there were many examples of obedience and great faith on his part. And only Scripture only reveals a couple of these, but it gives us the greatest one in Genesis 22. So he's been saved for 35 years. Uh, the, the son of promise, Isaac, was born and then Isaac now is grown up. Isaac probably in Genesis 22 is anywhere from 15 to 20 years old. i got a son who's now 14 who's almost taller than me, And it's hard for me to wrestle him down anymore and lick his face. It's not as easy as it used to be. He's he's licking back and spitting back. But anyway, now imagine Isaac, who's between 15 and 20. If he's 18 years old, which is very likely in Genesis 22, he is a man. Keep that in mind as you read what happens. Follow along in Genesis 22, verse 1. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. God does test believers. He tests our faith. This is good. Not tempt us. He doesn't tempt us to sin. He tests us. He puts us in situations to help grow our faith. No pain, no gain, right? And he isn't testing Abraham because God doesn't know. God knows. He wants to grow Abraham's faith. He wants to put on display Abraham's great faith and that he he achieves that in this chapter, but so it's a test. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. And God said, take now your son. Get this. Take now your son, Isaac, your only son. Now, was Isaac Abraham's only son? No. No. Because Abraham had an older son named Ishmael. Well, why is he called only son? Well, that phrase, only son in verse 2, occurs again in verse 12. Your only son. It occurs a third time in this chapter in verse 16. Your only son. It's a specific term and phrase that God is referring to something very specifically. It means your promised son. The promised son. Literally, in the New Testament, it's you, the unique son. And what was unique about Isaac? He wasn't the only child in the family, he wasn't the only son of Abraham. He was the unique son. That's what it means. That's actually probably a better translation. Take now your son Isaac, your unique son, the son of promise, the son of the covenant. And this is where in John 3.16, the terminology literally comes from right here in Genesis. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It is the exact same phrase and concept. Jesus is the unique Son of the Father. He is the Son of promise. He is the Messiah. He is the sacrifice for sin. Important phrase. So take now your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah, which is by Jerusalem, on a hill there, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. Can you imagine this? God is telling Abraham, Abraham, take uh, the son of promise Isaac that I've been telling you about since you were 75 years old, which is now about 50 years. I was telling you I was going to give you the son by which you will have nations come from your loins by which the Messiah will also come. Take that son, Isaac, and kill him on a mountain on an altar with a knife. Wow. I was thinking about that. Wow, if God came to me and asked me to kill one of my children, would I do this? I fear that I would not love God enough or obey God enough to do that. Some parents are thinking, well, I would. But anyway. Um, so this is great. Notice, it's not. he says specifically the son that you love. Abraham doesn't hesitate. There's an example of his faith right there. Before he even does this great work, you see his great faith. That's the point. Works always issues from true faith. He is a man of faith. We know that several times in the passage, the first sign of faith is that he doesn't argue with God. Okay, God, it's immediate obedience. Instant obedience. Without question. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men or servants with him and Isaac, his son, his 18-year-old son, however old he was. He split wood for the burnt offering, arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So he's doing everything God told him to do. This is a man of faith. True faith manifests with obedient actions. Verse 4, with the right heart. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place for Uh, from a distance. So they started on their journey and they were down in Beersheba, which is in the south, and it took about two plus days to get to Jerusalem from where he was and that's why the third day. There's nothing spiritual about number three here. Just the third day. That's how long it took to get to Moriah. So they've been walking along. Third day, raises his eyes, sees uh, Mount Moriah from a distance. Verse 5, And Abraham said to the younger man, Stay here with the donkey. I and the lad, I and the young man, I and my son, we're going to go up yonder. That means we're going to go over there. Yonder. And here's another amazing example of his faith. Verse 5. And we, me and Isaac, will worship, and we will return to you. Now, Abraham already knows what God said in verse 2. Kill your son on the mountain. And here, a few verses later, Abraham is saying, We will, me and my son, we will return to you. That is an example of faith. That means that Abraham believed that God was going to do a miracle. God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. That's what Hebrews 11 says. Or it could be, uh, as he says later, that God was going to provide a substitute for that death in his place. So Abraham, man of faith, verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. Wow! Puts it on his shoulders. Here, son, carry this for the fire by which you will be consumed. Isaac doesn't even know that. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so the two of them, Isaac and Abraham, father and son, walked on together. It's kind of cool that Abraham leads his son as a father in worship with his teenage boy. Me and my teenage boy, we're going to go worship God. That's what every Christian dad should do. The initiator of taking your children to worship. Well, I don't want to go to church. Well, we're going to go worship God anyway. So that's what Abraham does. Good dad. Good dad. Verse 7. So they're walking along up towards the mountain. Isaac, he's a slow teenager. He finally gets a clue. Hmm, something fishy going on. And Isaac spoke to his dad, Abraham. said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? We're going to go up and kill something. Where's the lamb? It just dawns on him three days later. That's how teenagers are. But anyway. Verse 8. Abraham, and here's another amazing example of faith. Abraham said, God will provide. The Hebrew for that is where we get Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. God is the great provider. You have a need in your life? God will provide if you know Him. God will provide for Himself where He sees. God literally sees. He sees your need and He will meet your need. If you're a child of God. Isn't that great? It's His name. The God who sees. The God who meets the need. The God who is the great Yahweh provider, Jehovah Jireh. Yahweh Jireh, literally, God will provide for Himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Isn't that amazing? So on the one hand, Isaac believed, or Abraham believed, that Isaac would be raised from the dead, and then in, somehow, maybe by way of revelation, Abraham knew that God would provide a sacrifice as a substitute. God will provide. So the two of them walked on together. That was a a good answer for Isaac. He was content. Verse 9, Then they came to the place of which God had told them. Abraham starts building an altar. This probably took a while, by the way. Son, pick up those stones. And they're building this altar together. The place of his death. And Abraham built the altar there. He arranged the wood. Gets the fire going. It's flaming up. And get this. And then he bound his 18-year-old son Isaac. I wonder how that went. I wonder if Isaac resisted, if he fought it, if he just, came, I have no idea, did doesn't tell us. Abraham maybe had a wrestling match on his hands, but he came, dad came out on top. He bound Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Wow. Abraham stretched out his hand, he's got the knife, and he's ready to plunge it into his son and kill his son. And people would question, what kind of God would ask Abraham to kill his beloved son? That's why people impugn the Old Testament. They impugn the character of God, calling Him a a God of anger and of wrath. Was this immoral of God to make this requirement? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. God determines what is right and wrong. If God issues a decree, it is right. It is holy. It is the just thing to do. And it is beyond comprehension. Uh, Human ethics or ethics doesn't start with human understanding. Abraham stretched out his hand. He's got the knife. He took the knife, ready to slay Isaac. He's ready to thrust it. And all of a sudden, a miracle. Verse 11, The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes. He looked up and behold, supernaturally... Behind him is a ram caught in the thicket by his horns, and Abraham went, took the ram, offered the ram up for a burnt offering in the place as a substitute for his son. Isn't that amazing? Everything about the true nature of sanctification or salvation that God provides for sinners is in this beautiful story, this real story, this historical story. That we deserve death. We deserve to be killed for our sins. But God is gracious. He loves sinners. He initiates salvation. He is on a rescue mission. He requires death for our sins, but instead of killing us, He's going to kill even someone better than us, a perfect substitute in our place. Jesus, the Lamb of God. Isn't that awesome? That's what this story is all about. And this is a true historical account of the nature of God and how He saves people. But there is the great act. That was a great manifestation of Abraham's faith. He put his faith into action by all of those obedient works leading up to that one amazing one of being willing to plunge the knife in his very own beloved son. So let's go back to James chapter 2. That is the foundation in the background for James 2 accentuating this great act of faith shown through works that Abraham did after having been saved for 30 plus years. The point being that saving faith produces godly behavior just as manifest in Abraham's life. This is true also all throughout the Bible. If you're a believer, you will produce good works in your life because the Holy Spirit of God is trying to produce good works in your life and He will be successful. So look back at your life. How long have you been a Christian? And go back into your life. Examine yourself like Paul says in Corinthians and and see what God has done in your life. How has He changed you? It starts there. A lot of people have great testimonies. God instantly changed me. I used to speak this way and I used to think this way. And He changed me and made me a new creation. And ever since then, uh, good works have been issuing forth by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit in obedience to Scripture. It's, it's all of God. It's the nature of being a Christian. Being a true Christian requires, demands, and will bring about good works in your life. Uh, I do want to just look at a couple of passages. Look at uh, in Matthew Back there at the beginning of your New Testament. Matthew chapter 3. Where John the Baptist comes preaching the Gospel. That Jesus is the Savior. Part of the Gospel is preaching repentance. Calling people to recognize their sin. Turn from their sin. Turn to God. So that they might be changed and made a new creature. So that they might be justified or saved by God. And once they are saved, they will have good works issuing from their life in godly attitudes, godly actions, godly words. John the Baptist knew this was basic true religion since Genesis chapter 2. And so John the prophet that he was, the preacher that he was, his message real simple in Matthew 3 verse 2 he says repent, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And then uh, verse 5, he's in Jerusalem preaching by Judea. Everybody's coming around. They're hearing John the Baptist. They're coming out. They're intrigued. They're listening. They're hearing the message. Uh, Many were wanting to... It's like really an altar call. And they're coming forward and they're getting in the river and they want to be baptized. And they're saying they want to be blessed by God and turn from their sin and be saved. And that's what's happening. Verse 6, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. And so this long line, all kinds of people from the city coming out Getting baptized by John the Baptist, heeding his message, verse 7, but when he saw... So he's got all huge crowds. Every preacher would be excited or every evangelist. Look at all the crowds. Look at the number. Let's count heads. How many people we got here? Oh, look, we even got the the Sadducees and the Pharisees. All of them. Together. They are here too. Well, that is exciting. John the Baptist did not get excited about that. Look at verse 7. When John the Baptist saw that many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these guys were religious hypocrites to the core. They killed Jesus. He saw saw all these Pharisees and Sadducees going into the Jordan River, going to John the Baptist saying, we want to be baptized too. And then John says this, as they were coming for baptism, John said to them, you brood of vipers. John, will you please baptize me? You snake. What if I did that to people who came here? Pastor, can I get baptized? You snake. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to the other church. They're nicer there. Well, I don't say you snake because I'm not John the Baptist. He was moved by the Spirit of God. He was supposed to say that this is divine revelation. This was a one-time event. God wanted him to do this because God allowed him to see the hearts of these guys supernaturally. They were snakes. You snakes. Who warns you of the flea to flee the wrath to come? Here's the key in verse 8. Therefore, bring forth, you Pharisees and Sadducees, you hypocrites, bring forth fruit. There it is. Bring forth godly works. In keeping with your repentance. That, see, that's the basic truth. If you are a true believer, you will have fruit in your life that reflects that you're a true believer. Which is exactly what James chapter 2 is saying. If you have true faith, it will issue in godly works. And the, the, these Sadducees and Pharisees, they weren't true believers. It was a facade. They were lying. They were putting on a show. They wanted the approval of the crowds, this is all they wanted. And as a result, they weren't truly born-again or regenerate, and so they didn't have godly works in their life. They didn't honor the orphan and the widow like James says true religion does in James chapter 1. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, you know what they did? They took advantage of widows in their day. Oh, that lady's husband died. Oh, let's go and take over her house. Let's manipulate her for all of her money. And they did. So go back to James chapter 2. Uh, one more, Matthew, oh, I'm sorry, stay in Matthew, Matthew 7, uh, four chapters over, sorry. And this is Jesus talking this time, and again, he's just reiterating the same truth that James is talking about. Uh, depending upon your root, that will determine your fruit, okay? If you've got the root of born again salvation and righteousness, if that's the root of your spiritual life, then fruit will grow from the root. That's the theme in Matthew 7. Starting in verse 15, Jesus says, "Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves." Notice inwardly, what they're like inwardly. That's the root. The root of these unbelievers is rotten to the core. And because their root is rotten, their fruit will be rotten. Verse 16: You will know them by their fruit. See, every person produces works in their life. Every person produces fruit. Is it good fruit or rotten fruit? That's the point. Is a good fruit or rotten fruit? is based on whether it's a good root or a rotten root. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the rotten tree bears bad fruit. Verse 17, what he's saying is every Christian will produce good fruit. Every unbeliever will produce bad fruit. That's just the way it is. That is a spiritual reality and truth. It's a spiritual law that cannot be changed. It's irreversible. Okay, now we can go back to James chapter 2. Saving faith produces godly behavior. By the way, um, that verse there... Abraham was uh, validated. Abraham's faith was validated by the works in his life, as he offered Isaac up on the altar, verse 22. You see that faith was working with his works. See, that's the issue. Verse 22. Faith was working with his works. It's kind of interesting. in Hebrews 11:17 it says, "By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac." Wow. So even the good works that we do, we do them by faith. We have a supernatural source. Supernatural faith is the fuel to the good works that we do. An unbeliever doesn't have supernatural faith that God gives them. So faith and works are inseparable. And there are religionists and even professing Christians who want to separate the two. And those that try to separate, they just want works and don't emphasize faith. Those are legalists. And then the others who just want uh, faith and they don't want works, those are the antinomian easy-believism people. Those are two extremes. And James is saying, verse 22, No, faith was working together with His works. They go together. Faith comes first and then works always follow. And they work hand in hand and they are absolutely inseparable. And that's Ephesians 2, 8-10. Same thing. God saves us by grace through faith to do good works for His glory. And then he goes on, uh, verse 22, you see that His faith was working with His works and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. His Abraham's faith was literally matured or revealed or it reached a maximum point in his life. Over the course of 30 plus years, his life was just filled more and more with good works. And this was the pinnacle of godly works in his life when this incident happened. And that's what's going to happen in in our life as you're a believer. As you grow and keep growing the life of sanctification, you're going to have works issuing from your life more and more by the grace of God and the Spirit of God so that you could say the same thing. Over the course of your life, your faith was matured. It was perfected. It was filled up the end of verse 22. So saving faith produces godly behavior. Uh, and God does that over time in our life through the process of sanctification here and there, little by little. Again, it's the direction of your life, not the perfection of your life. And so a word to encourage parents as you're raising your children in the faith. You know, a lot of parents, I was a children's pastor for quite a while. And I one thing that concerned me was when parents used to say things like, well, I don't know if my three-year-old is born again yet. I don't know if he's born again. Your three-year-old? Or you, wow. Wow. In my opinion, I think that's impossible to determine. He probably acts like a three-year-old, doesn't he? uh Huh, that's what I suspected. So the point is, you, God has given you a seed, and our children are like seeds, and we, by the grace of God, we want to plant the seed, protect the seed, nurture the seed, as it, and then it's growing like a tree. Your children are like... Even the Old Testament says that. They're olives, olive trees, and oak trees, our children. And when they're in your house and growing up around you, we want to protect them and nurture them and give them the water and uh, keep the bugs away and give them fertilizer and everything else and and guard them and love them and breathe carbon monoxide on them. They love it, and they give us oxygen. But the point is, if you're—I got four kids, so I got four orange trees in my house, and they look like—they're different sizes, by the way. Not one of my four orange trees has all luscious, perfect oranges yet. It's too soon. Branches look good. Got some nice green leaves. But it's by God's grace and His promises and prayer and faith trusting that we have raised them in a pleasing way to God that at some point in their life they're going to transition where our faith becomes their faith. And usually that doesn't manifest until later in their life and they become a little older or maybe an adult. Or You're still waiting. So parents, don't get... Discourage too quickly, too easily, too fast with your young children when they 're acting like three year olds or teenagers, maybe the branches there the, maybe or maybe the orange fruit is green, let it grow don 't pick it off too soon it 's sour when it 's green, let it grow, let it mature, let it become ripe, and that 's with time, and so you 've got to be supernaturally patient as a parent um, because we're praying for that godly, those godly works and that godly behavior, but we've got to be realistic in our expectations with our own family, our own children, and those around us. So let's go on to point number three. After Number two is saving faith produces godly behavior. Saving faith is taking God at His Word. You can't get saved with human faith. You can't get saved with dead faith. You can't get saved with useless faith. You can't get saved with superficial faith. You can only be saved by supernatural, God-given, saving faith. Man, when I hear that, I have one question. Where does that faith come from? Because I want it. Well, Scripture tells us. And so the verses I put down there, I put verse 23a. Saving faith is taking God at His Word. Because in verse 23, James says, the Scripture was fulfilled. In other words, James is saying, do you remember when God saved Abraham for the first time in his life when he was born again in Genesis 15? Do you remember that story? That's what he's saying what he says the scripture the scripture genesis 15:6 this is consistent with when abraham got saved the first time he's acting like a saved person and he recounts what happened when he got saved out of genesis 15:6 and abraham here it is believed god okay he believed god that's what supernatural saving faith is by definition It is taking God at His Word, and I'm even going to get more specific on a definition of true saving faith. True saving faith is the supernatural ability. Well, that's key. The supernatural ability, in other words, it can't be conjured up at the human level. It can't just be sheer willpower or say, oh, I want to believe. Or this faith that is universal and accessible to every person on planet Earth. That is not the saving faith. Because everybody believes in God. Agnostics believe in God. They're just not telling the truth. False religion people, they believe in God. I believed in God before I got saved for 19 years. I knew God existed. I knew He was real. I was running from God. So I didn't have to exercise faith to believe in God. Did you know that? No one has to exercise faith to believe in God. That may sound scandalous to you, but that is exactly what Romans 1 teaches the Apostle Paul. Because God put conscience in every human being and He made every human being in the image of God and the truth about God is evident within them. Every single human being is without excuse. That's called natural revelation. General revelation. Universal revelation. To believe that God exists. The demons believe that God exists. That doesn't take supernatural faith. That's just general revelation. Or to say that faith is the same as equating it with I, uh, I, I have faith in that chair because when I sit down in it, I'm not going to fall. So let's see how it goes. That is not biblical saving faith. That, that's... uh Instinct and experience. That's not faith. But biblical faith is trust in a person. That's the difference. In a person. There is personal intimacy there. And it's supernatural. Which means it comes only from God. Saving faith is alien to us as humans. The Reformers used to talk about alien righteousness. A righteousness we received that was not our own. There is also alien faith. We get faith that it is alien to us. It is not our own. So this is saving faith. True saving faith is the supernatural ability to believe God in response to His revelation. See, that's key. It is always a response. In other words, God has to initiate direct supernatural revelation. He has to initiate the relationship in our life for, for us to have saving faith. It is all of God. We're not initiating it with God. We're running from God. He's running after us. And it's supernatural revelation that He gives us that produces faith. So I'm going to say it one more time. Faith. The supernatural ability to believe in God in response to His revelation. Now, with that definition, go to Romans 10:17. It's very important. This could be on this topic. This is one of the most important verses, I think, at issue of where does saving faith come from? After the book of Acts, you've got Paul in the book of Romans uh, at the beginning of all the way almost all, the entire chapter 10 of Romans talks about how people get saved how do sinners get saved well they have to hear the gospel about Jesus Christ no one can get saved apart from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ impossible and the only way that people can hear the gospel is it has to come from preachers from people from Christians who deliver the very specific message of divine revelation of who Jesus is and what he did and what he requires of us as sinners And that's why we need preachers, and that's why we need evangelism, and that's why we need missionaries. So we can give them the message, this supernatural message of divine revelation. And when people hear the revelation of God, they have the ability for the first time in their life to respond to God in faith. Because by hearing the Word of God, by hearing Scripture, supernatural revelation, Bible verses, that produces saving faith in a sinner's life. And the culmination of that is Romans 10, 17. So as a result, in light of everything I've just said, Paul says, so faith, saving faith, true faith, supernatural faith, alien faith, comes from hearing. That means hearing, seeing, reading, and understanding Scripture or biblical truth. So faith comes from hearing and specifically hearing by the Word of Christ, hearing the Word of God. That's where faith comes from. So if you want your neighbor to get saved, there's only one way it's going to happen. They have got to hear Scripture, the Bible, the Word of God, and specifically in the message of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, they are not going to get saved. They don't have the faith to do it. Even the faith that saves us is a gift from God. And this is also true of a believer. If you're already a Christian, don't you want to grow in your faith? I do. You're not going to. There's only one way that a Christian will grow in their faith in their life, and that is by getting more faith. Getting more faith. And there's only one way to get faith, and it comes from Scripture. It comes from the truth of the Bible. So that's why Christians have got to be grazing and feeding all the time on the Word of God on biblical truth because that is the only source of faith that will help you. You go two weeks without your nose in the Word of God, you skip church a couple of times, and then you feel down in the dumps, and oh, I'm in a valley, and I'm really dry, and I'm whatever, and I'm depressed. Yeah, well, you're depriving yourself of spiritual food, that God wants to give you to produce supernatural faith in your life. It's the only way a Christian can grow. The Word of God, plain as day, Romans 10, 17. Thank you, Paul, for telling us that faith only comes by hearing the Word of Christ. So saving faith is taking God at His Word. And that's how Abraham got saved, right? He didn't have the Bible. He didn't have written Scripture. He had something better. He had God audibly talking to him. I'd take that over the written Bible any day. But that hasn't happened to me as a Christian. God says, this is sufficient. My written Word, it is living. It is living. It is the living word of God, and with the Holy Spirit living in you, it is sufficient. But God was literally speaking to Abraham over the course of 25 years, or 14 years, when Abraham finally got saved in response to everything he heard from God through divine revelation. So his faith grew to a point where it could issue in salvation coming from God. So saving faith is taking God at his word, and then finally, what about saving faith? Saving faith changes, number four, saving faith changes the sinner's status. So Abraham, for 75 years, was an unbeliever, was a pagan, wasn't getting divine revelation, didn't have faith in God. 75 years. He worshipped idols. And at age 75, God started talking to him and giving him divine revelation. Giving him seeds of faith. Mustard seeds of faith that God began to cultivate and grow until it blossomed and issued in salvation when he was 86 years old. After 11 years of hearing the word of God. And so James concludes this illustration of Abraham, the man of faith, who did good works by saying, "We'll read it again." It changed his status. Verse 23 in the scripture was fulfilled, which says, "Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Get this." So God saved Abraham at age 86. And then guess what happened? God changed Abraham from the inside out. He made Abraham a new creation. Because of Abraham's supernatural faith, God looked down as the judge and said, Abraham, from this day forward, you are totally clean. You are totally forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future, because your faith in response to me. Totally forgiven. You are totally just. You are totally righteous before me as the judge of the universe. When you die, you will be transported immediately into the presence of holy God for all eternity. That's what happened when he got saved. Not any different than what happens when we get saved. So his status was changed. It's like when two people get married. And just before the pastor guy says, you may kiss the bride, they they aren't married. Their status, they are single people. And they just by a pronouncement, a legal pronouncement, you may kiss the bride. They kiss, voila, all of a sudden, they are one flesh, they are married before the eyes of God. Isn't that amazing? By a pronouncement. That's what God does at salvation. He makes a pronouncement. You believe, you are saved. You are righteous. So our status instantly changes at that moment. It's called the moment of justification. Where God, up in heaven as the judge, decrees that we are now righteous by virtue of our faith in the Gospel. And our status instantaneously changes. That's what happened to Abraham. And when your status before God... By the way, before this happened to Abraham, he was an enemy of God. He was a child of wrath. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. And in Romans chapter 5. And then God changed his status legally as the judge of the universe and said, now what? You know what? You're adopted into my family. You are righteous. Your sins are forgiven. That didn't mean Abraham... He didn't become perfect that day. He still messed up a lot, didn't he? But his legal, spiritual status before the creator of the universe instantaneously changed and he was transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God or the beloved Son. And if you, when you become a Christian, that's what happens to you. It is supernatural. It is invisible. Our status changes. And as a result, we're saved. We are redeemed. We are cleansed. We are forgiven. We are blessed. We are heirs. We are adopted. Aren't those all great truths? Here's another one. Oh, we're Christians. And then at the end of verse 23, because of a change in the status, we are friends of God. Because from that day forward it says that Abraham was called the friend of God. Wow. you know there's not a religion on planet earth other than Christianity that says you can be a personal friend of the God of the universe? Not only is Jesus my God, my Lord, my Savior, He is my friend. John 15, verse 15, He said that to His disciples. After He got Judas out of there, And removed him from the room, that devil. then he got 11 disciples left. And he said, you know what? You guys aren't my slaves anymore. You are my friends. My personal friends. And Abraham, because his status changed from being a sinner and an enemy of God and a child of wrath and a son of the devil, his status got changed and now he's adopted in the family of God and is a friend of God. What beautiful intimacy that speaks of. A friend, right? A friend with God. You have a one-on-one personal relationship with the God of the universe. With Jesus, your blessed Savior. And by the way, the kind of friend God... If you want a friend, God is the best friend to have, isn't He? God will be a better friend than any of your family members. God will be a better friend... Jesus will be a better friend than your spouse. Jesus will be a better friend than any of your uh, children. Jesus will be a more faithful friend than any of your friends at church. Your friends will let you down. Your friends, human friends, will always disappoint us, won't they? And even we as friends will disappoint other people. God doesn't disappoint. And by the way, God is a friend forever and eternity because that's what the Old Testament says. When it says at the end of verse 23, and he was called the friend of God, that means that at some point in the past, in the Old Testament, it was known that God called Abraham his friend. And He did. He did it in the book of Isaiah and He did it in the book of Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. Now, in 2 Chronicles, it's interesting, Jehoshaphat is praying to God. And he says, remember your people Israel that you love. That came from the, the loins of Abraham, your friend, forever. God is an eternal friend. He will never abandon you. Isn't that awesome? You know what's even better is the, the one in Isaiah uh, 41 to 8. And let's, let's close with this because it's awesome. And this is true of you. If you're a Christian, this is true of you. Look at Isaiah in your Old Testament there. Towards the middle of your Bible. Isaiah Forty-one, because the one in Second Chronicles, that's Jehoshaphat talking, saying that Abraham was God's friend. The one, the reason I like Isaiah forty-one better is because it is God talking. God talking. Let me tell you about my friend Abraham. Isaiah forty-one. This is God talking. He's speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and then Isaiah ends up writing it down. Isaiah forty-one, verse four last part of the verse where it says, I, the Lord, I, Yahweh. So God is talking here. I, Yahweh, revealing His character, reminding Israel of His faithfulness, what He's done, who He's committed to, the sin of Israel, but He's still committed to them. Verse 8, Isaiah 41, But you, Israel, My servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. See, I haven't abandoned you just because you're sinful. I haven't abandoned you. Israel and Jacob both came from the loins of Abraham. And let me remind you about Abraham, God says. Israel and, and Jacob, descendant of Abraham, my friend. That's what God said. My friend, my eternal friend. Because he was righteous, forgiven, adopted into the family of God. Isn't that, that's an amazing truth, because yes, when we become a Christian, we are friends with God, and at the same time, God remains transcendent from us. He will always be God. He will always be greater than us. He will always be our Lord. We will always have a reverence about him. He will always be uh, infinite beyond our comprehension to some degree. But at the same time, there's that amazing intimacy knowing him as a friend. What a blessed truth. And the fact that God calls Abraham a friend is a truth that is also reserved for all believers because that's what it says in Galatians and Romans Abraham is a father, he is the, our father of faith. And all the blessings He received through salvation are also accessible to us. And the friendship with God is one of those great blessings. Well, with that, in this great challenging passage, I just thought here's some closing thoughts to maybe work on in our own lives, asking God to help us in light of these truths that every true Christian should have godly behavior and fruits in their life. Practical challenges for all of us. It begins by examining yourself, like Paul said. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Or, in the words of David who prayed in the Old Testament, Search me, O Lord. Search me. So examine yourself. And then the second point is a corollary to that. Examine yourself by depending on God and ask God to examine you. Ask God to examine me in my prayer life, just like David did. God, examine me. Search me. Expose my sin, my shortcomings, my weaknesses. Help me. Use me. Glorify You through my life. God, help me. Number three, what else we can do? Ask the Holy Spirit in you to provide good, uh, to produce good works. We can't do any good works apart from the help of the Holy Spirit, right? He's our helper. So we literally need to talk to the Holy Spirit. When was the last time you talked to or prayed to the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit, help me. Stir up Your Spirit in me. Clean up my insides. I'm sorry that I am such a lousy host of this body for You, Holy Spirit. God, forgive me. Spirit produce good works in my life, starting with good attitudes, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So ask the Holy Spirit. Uh, number four, grow in faith. How do you do that? Take in God's word, take in God's truth. Read the Bible, listen to the Bible, listen to sermons. Go to Bible study, go to Sunday school. Take in the Word of God. Meditate on Scripture. Write it down, memorize it. Go to Awana. Put verses all over your house, in your mirror, on the bathroom. Take in the Word of God. That's where faith comes from. That's the only place it comes from. Grow in your faith. And then finally, as you see God working in your life, allowing you to grow and producing good works in your life, give all the glory and praise and thanks to Him, right? Because that's where it belongs. With that, let's go ahead and and pray to God as we uh, are about to partake of communion. Father, we thank You for our time together. For these dear people, for Your precious saints. Uh, God, for these encouraging words from Scripture. Encouraging because we know Abraham's life. He, he messed up, God. And you graciously showed us a couple of snapshots where he really messed up. Sinned against you. Sinned against what he knew was right and at the same time was a believer. Loved by you. Forgiven by you. Used by you. God, that's great hope for us. We do the same. We walk with feet of clay. We mess up. We sin. We rebel. We have hardened hearts at times. God, we know with Your grace, mercy, salvation, Your indwelling Spirit, Scripture, prayer, accountability, we can be used in great ways by You. God, I pray that You would stir up the Spirit of God in every single one of us that knows You, that we might produce good works that allow people to look at our lives and then look to Jesus Christ, that You might be glorified in heaven. And God, if there's anybody here today that doesn't know You as a personal friend, I pray that what they've heard today would draw them closer to you, that they would be convicted, that you'd open their eyes so they can see the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would uh, remove satanic blindness that would keep them from believing, and even the blindness of their own sin as we entrust them to you. We thank you so much. We give you the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.